and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our messy and sometimes prickly public conversations, and how we can engage better with people different from ourselves. Every episode, I speak to someone involved in some way in public debates, and ask them to reflect on what has formed them, what they hold sacred, and what they've learnt about connecting across disagreement. I speak to artists and archbishops, journalists and novelists, academics and faith leaders from across religious and political spectrums. The idea is that if you listen long enough, you will hear someone you would never naturally choose to learn about, but we hope you will be glad that you did. Before I introduce our guest today, I wanted to give you a heads up that we'll be doing our first Sacred Live for the public on September the 11th this year. We've done a few live recordings at events recently, which you can hear in the coming months, but this one is open to everyone and it's going to be a good one. Our guests will be Lydia Fox and Richard Ayoade, so save the date, bookings will be open in July. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with our very own Hussein Kazvani. Yes, speaking to one of our production team is slightly incestuous, but it gave us a chance to hear about the fascinating things he's been up to in the other 95% of his life. Hussein Kazvani is the UK and Europe editor of Mel magazine, writes about technology, online subcultures, identity and modern masculinity. He also hosts a comedy podcast called Trash Future and is the author of Follow Me Aki, the online world of British Muslims. We spoke about his parents being expelled from Idi Amin's Uganda, his journey from faith to atheism and back again, and his adventures in digital expressions of Islam. I hope you enjoy listening. Hussein, having listened to or produced goodness knows how many the sacred podcasts, clearly on the tip of your tongue without even having to think yeah. about it, you know what your sacred value is. Kind of. Kind of. Like, you know, when you, underest- you underestimate how difficult it is to actually be the person speaking behind the microphone. So, so I, I'm just to kind of as a disclaimer, I'm going to be like pretty nervous throughout this whole thing, just because again, like I, you know, produce so many of these and you have like a lot of you have like a very high standard to live up to. So we're going to try our best. We're going to try and hopefully you'll be fine. Sacred Valleys. I was thinking about this last night and I, there were a few things that were coming into my mind, but I think what was kind of the thing that stuck out was like respect. And that kind of informed a lot of kind of growing up that informed a lot of my relationships with my culture and my religion. And it also like informed my work too. Cause like as a journalist, like especially a journalist who does a lot of stories about human interests and profiling, you know, you've got to have like a respect for people and you've got to have a respect for like the, the world that they come from and the decisions that they make and the reasons why they've made particular choices, even if you disagree with them. There has to be this kind of understanding that like being, I guess, like inquisitive or being kind of curious about how people live requires and demands a respect for their choices and like the difficult decisions that they made so i'm going to say that like respect is probably the like sacred value that sort of underlines a lot of my trajectory in my life you alluded to respect in your childhood and your culture so tell me a little bit about where you grew up what that was like and particularly if there were any ideas religious philosophical political that formed you i did most of my growing up in kent i grew up in an area near Dartford in Kent, which is kind of known. Dartford is sort of Dartford is this town that's like known by the bridge by which people leave it, and it's kind of one of these commuter towns that exists just outside of London. Yeah, I went to school there. Like I went to the grammar school there. I 
still kind of live close by. Like I, I live in South London now, but I don't live too far away from it. So in many ways, like I never really got to leave, even though like I desperately wanted to for so long. In terms of like growing up, I grew up in a Shia Muslim family, like one of the kind of minority groups in Islam. My parents were Ugandan Asian in the sense that they they were originally from Gujarat in India, uh, as in their, their ancestry was from Gujarat in India. And they, my great grandfather was the first generation to his first, his generation was to move to Uganda for like, you know, business reasons. And because there wasn't really a lot of opportunity as like farmers in Gujarat. And my family were there until like 1971, 1972, which was when the Ugandan Asian expulsion happened by Idi Amin, who was then the president of Uganda. And his whole thing was that like the, like the, the kind of non- black Ugandans who were living in the country were sort of like leeching off the country's economy. And as a result, it was ended up in like being in like forcible deportation. And the, because Uganda was part of the Commonwealth at the time, it meant that the Ugandan Asians who left were kind of given asylum in various Commonwealth countries. So my mother's side of the family went to Canada and my father's side of the family went to the UK and when I was a kid, I kind of like was between both. Um, I kind of lived between both. But eventually we settled in the UK when my parents ran a uh, corner store, a uh, convenience been, store. It must have been extremely formative yeah. for your parents. How do they tell that story? Can you see how it mm. shaped them? I mean, I know it in a very peripheral level, but I always knew that it kind of existed. And I'd always heard stories about like, you know, coming to the country of nothing. There's like one anecdote that my that my mum used to tell me, which was that each family got like two bin bags, like two rubbish bags to kind of put their belongings in. They were only allowed two rubbish bags before they got on the plane. So like they came to the country with like nothing but like maybe some clothes and like, you know, some photos and everything. You know, not really a lot. And, you know, to kind of think about that now is really is quite dark. There's there was this film that came out called uh, The Last King of Scotland, which was ba- which was based on the reign of Idi Amin and there was like a section in that book about the Ugandan Asian expulsion and that was the first time I'd seen it like visually like on screen and like that really was quite haunting but it was also this realization that oh this kind of really remarkable and momentous thing happened and it's kind of part of your history and like part of like this whole narrative around displacement yeah and it's kind of like do you know what I mean like it's sort of I know that it exists there is still like a lot that I need to kind of learn about it and i think a lot of that, a lot of questions that i need to ask like there's you know it's, it's sometimes it can be uncomfortable to be like tell me about like the darkest moment of your life which is really effectively when you're like asking your family about this like what they'll say so what i'm hoping is that like over time i'll be able to learn more and like piece those things together one of the themes in your book and in your work is about identity mm. and navigating and exploring your own identity do you get a sense from your parents or other members of this community like at the reunion you went to that uganda still has associations of home you know other other displaced communities often talk about Mm. a sense of unrootedness and desire to to return yeah was it so traumatic that that's just not something that would ever happen for anyone or or do you see any of that back and forth happening now it's a very strange one because i know like lots of other diaspora communities they kind of refer to home as like Pakistan or like Bangladesh, you know, various parts of like Africa, they kind of have rootedness. And because like my origins come from this like village in India where like two generations of people like haven't lived, the idea of having like a homeland has always sort of been like this alien concept to like my family and I. 
Um, but at the same time, like even though my parents and my family like have quite fond memories of Uganda, like it's not enough to kind of be like there's this kind of calling back home. So yeah, you end up in this state where it's kind of like, well, kind of the UK is our home because it's the only place that we've known or it's the only place that kind of was the place that we've been the longest and we've been kind of able to survive the longest in. And I think that's also why like that generation of immigrants have often been like labeled as like the good model immigrants, you know, the people that like other immigrant groups should like aspire to be. It's And, you know, that's quite sad to think about because it's kind of like the condition of being a good immigrant also means that you have to come from this place of like rootlessness where you don't really have a choice but to see like your current state of being as your home because there's not really anything else. And talk to me about Islam and what that lived experience looked like for you as you were growing up. So actually that's a really good, it's a really good relationship because I think when, when you come from a family that like doesn't have like a geographic anchor, they often turn to religion as the next kind of best thing. It's like the next kind of sense of rootedness. And as I said before, like my family come from a Shia background. So like a type of Shiism that came originally from Iran, like in around about maybe the 18th century, sometime in the 18th century, you know, and they still practice it now. I grew up in like a practicing household in the sense that my family, you know, prayed and we fasted. We kind of followed all the five pillars. Like, you know, a lot of my family have been to like Mecca for Hajj. We didn't drink. We didn't, you know, eat pork, all that stuff. And I grew up in kind of this household where I wouldn't say that religion was forced on us, but it was very much kind of like present a lot. So, you know, my sister and I went to kind of, my sister and I went to Quran school most like several evenings. We went to like the religious school on Saturdays. My mother used to teach there. You know, my dad used to take me to the mosque whenever he was, you know, going to it. And our mosque was like pretty far away. Like it was kind of an hour and a bit from our house. So like... Is that because mm, the majority of Muslims in the UK are Sunni, is that? Yeah. And also, yeah. And also because like the local community mosque, like the local kind of like, you know, the, the East African Asian Muslims kind of all tend to be in you know, closer into South London than we are. So for my dad, it's very much like we're going to like our local community one because we have kind of history there. Whereas like, if it was just a matter of distance, like there's a mosque like 10 minutes away from my house. So it like for me, it was like, I don't understand why we're traveling this far. But for my dad, it was very much like, this is his sense of rootedness. And I only really appreciated that when I got a lot older. So I think it was always present. But I think at the same time, you know, as I said, like I grew up in Dartford, it's a very kind of white secularish place, like I guess, you know, or like the majority of like the majority religion there is like Christian. I went to I went to a school where like we had you would have kind of like events that would take place in a church and stuff. And most people who went I went to school with either were like non-practicing Christians or they were kind of semi-practicing, but largely secular ones. So in that sense, like I was kind of in this weird state of conflict where on the one hand, I come from this very practicing household where even in my house, like there are, you know, I lived with my grandparents who, so there were like these very kind of direct rules that were rooted in religion in terms of like your obligations to your family, your obligations to your grandparents, your kind of obligations to your God in terms of making sure you're praying and following all these rules. And then also being in a school environment where that kind of identity was always present, but it was in this context of like, well, no one else in this school is particularly that religious. So like the way that you live at home is starkly different from the way that you are in school or even in any other like types of social environments. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. How was it in a majority white, majority non 
Muslinaria, just that experience. It was a trip. It was really, I didn't really realize how like disorientating it was until I was much older. And I, actually, I didn't really realize how much it had informed me until like after the 7 7 attacks in 2005. And that was the first time where like this very kind of direct sense of like you're Muslim and you're different from these other people who are your friends. That was the first time it became really kind of present. And I was like, at you know, so 2005, I was maybe what, like 15 or something like that, 14 or 15. So it's also like this weird age as well, because, you know, you're a teenager and you just want to do teenage things. You want to hang out with your friends and, you know, all that stuff. And to kind of be in this context where like friends that you had grown up with or like friends that you had kind of had your first couple of years of school with are now kind of looking at you like, you know, you're affiliated with you know, these attackers who like you've never kind of met or spoken to or like even had any association with, even had any kind of like real ethnic lineage with, like all of a sudden you're kind of lumped in with them because you have a name that kind of is vaguely Muslim. That was like a really bizarre and direct hit of identity in a way that didn't really exist before. So, you know, for a while it was like I was always present of being different largely because of my home environment, but I could kind of say that I could separate myself. So at home I could be, I could act like one person or I could be like one person and at school I can act like someone else and they can like both coexist. But after the 7-7 attacks, all of a sudden it was like, you know, this kind of identity that you've constructed for yourself, that can no longer apply because people are kind of giving an identity to you. So then I kind of reacted. I reacted to that by saying, well, like almost by doubling down on that. So I kind of, became, I went through this stage of being very religious, overtly religious after the 7-7 attacks. And, you know, there was there was only other, one other Muslim kid in my school. So we used to kind of go to the mosque during lunchtimes. We would, there was a period of time where we were listening to kind of nasheeds, which are like Islamic prayer, like music, instead of, you know, kind of the the pop and emo that was or like the just the weird like mid weird mid I don't want to go into like a rant about like mid 2000s music because I'm kind of like I'm very obsessed with it maybe for another time but like we weren't listening to a lot of like that stuff and it was only until like I got older when I sort of realized that that reaction even though it was a natural one wasn't necessarily the most healthy way of doing things so yeah I think that basically after 2005 like a lot of stuff changed and I became a lot more aware of who I was or like what identities people were going to put onto me. And I think that sort of trajectory, I mean, that sort of trajectory led to my interest in like, how do Muslims live in Britain? And like, kind of, I think is actually one of the starting points to how this book kind of came about. You had uh, an atheist phase? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like you swung to both poles quite hard there. Yeah. And I think, you know, and the internet's like a big, a big like result of that. Because I think at the same time, so my atheist phase kind of came after I sort of doubled down on like my religion thing. So I think there was like, it, it's an, it was an interesting period because like, I'm convinced on the one hand that everyone goes through that moment of time. And part of it is like rebellion. So part of it is kind of like, I really reject everything that I've grown up with in terms of like, you know, my parents, my parents are just like telling me I have to be this type of person. So I want to swing in like the other direction. And, you know, 2000 and what, 2007, eight, nine, it's like the golden year for like new atheism, right? Like, so like, you know, people like Sam Harris and the Four Horsemen and stuff, you know, I, I, I remember like buying a copy of, the God Delusion, which I read like a quarter of because like I just wasn't really that interested in what Richard Dawkins was saying. But the very presence of it being like in my house really like pissed off my parents. And I found that like incredibly funny. So I think it's like a classic nightmare teenager. Yeah, it was like a classic nightmare teenage thing. 
but it was like shrouded in like this kind of intellect because I was like I was kind of like nerdy and bookish as well back when I was back when I was that age so like my rebellion wasn't like smoking and drinking and like going to gigs and stuff it was like I'm gonna like reject everything that you kind of hold dearly by having this book in my house and also by saying that like you know God's not real and like you know if you know quoting like fake Darwin quotes and stuff you know all the kind of things that teenage atheists do and also at the time I think like new atheism wasn't really seen as that toxic right it was just this kind of new intellectual movement that was designed to critique all forms of religion and mostly like evangelical Christianity and this was such a big deal because under the Bush administration so much stuff about like evangelical Christianity had informed US politics the Iraq war the politics of Dick Cheney and stuff like that so being a new atheist felt like a rejection of American imperialism, which is so weird to kind of think about considering where new, new atheism has sort of led us now. But it was almost like this rejection of conservatism, this kind of stuffiness of religion, this kind of absoluteness. And the idea of being a new atheist also kind of gave you this veneer of intellectualism, which, you know, at the time made you feel really smart, especially when you didn't really have a lot of friends in school. You didn't really like weren't able to go to parties and stuff. It was like this way of kind of justifying a lot of things. So I think my i don't think it was like a sincere move to atheism but i think it was more just an act of teenage rebellion what role did online communities and social media was still very much in its infancy but you know the the technologies that were available to you play in that as you navigated what you believed and why yeah so i wasn't really allowed to go to parties and i wasn't really allowed to like you know my parents ran a corner store so even then it was kind of like you can't go out because like we've got to open the store in the morning and you need to be around so most of my social life came from being online and like we had like a family computer and you know at you know i went through almost every social media network so like here's one like for the all like the vintage people like pixo bebo myspace um, myspace obviously yeah I was like a forums guy, like I was on loads of forums. I used to spend up until the late hours just like posting on these like forums that I shouldn't have been on, you know, stuff that was talking about, you know, again, like everything ranging from like, you know, in-depth conversations about weapons to, you know, cult TV and cult movies. Like I was, I found like home in lots of these kind of online communities because for me it was kind of this opening into this new and bizarre world that I didn't really knew know existed, especially like living in such like a small area of Kent where like everyone kind of comes from very similar backgrounds. The idea that, oh, there's like this whole new world, like this whole like much bigger world out there was like such a liberating thing for me. And religion was obviously a big part of that. Like one kind of one thing I like try to say in the book is that you know, since kind of the conception of on like the online world, like religious communities and irreligious communities have kind of been the first adapters of that. So I remember like reading endless forums from like atheists fighting Christians and like atheists fighting Jews, you know, Christians fighting Muslims, like all these kind of like, and there were pages and pages of like dissecting particular like forms of text to try prove each other wrong. You know, atheists is kind of saying that everyone who's like, you know, imagine wasting all your time talking about religion online. Like, you know, whoever believes in God is stupid, which like back then I was like, yeah, I wish like, you know, someone was around to tell my parents that and I could not have to go to mosque or fast or anything. Again, like the rebellion side was there, but it was sort of like going online allowed me to kind of think that, 
oh, these thoughts that I have, I don't just have to internalize them. Like there are people who are willing to talk about this stuff with me. There are people who are willing to have these conversations with me. And there were people who, and because of like the anonymous nature of the internet as well, like there are people who are willing to talk about this with me, despite the fact that I'm like 16 years old and like in a real life situation, no one cares what I think. So that was such a kind of like revolutionary experience because it's like the first time where you can talk about your frustrations and you can build these like personal relationships. Like I had really kind of personal relationships with some of these kind of people on forums, which I have never met in real life. But the idea that I could just like message them about any sort of like problem that I was having or any sort of like conflict that I was having was so novel to me that in many ways it was like very addictive. Yeah. The way you talk about it in the book is it's really got me thinking about what what's private and what's public. Right. Because we think of public as shared institutions, used to be the kind of, you know, the public square, media, politics, education, and that public conversations happen in and around those things. And private conversations happen in our houses and with our friends and in yeah. pubs. But the way you talk about your life in online space, it feels like it's both because it's private in the sense that it's liberating you from the way you felt you had to be at school or at home. And the anonymity gives you the freedom to be not secret, but certainly private with it. But it's also public because you're encountering others. Do you, have you explored that at all? I think that's a really good way of putting it because even though I think I do address that, I've never actually thought about it in those terms before. And I think that's also because being someone who kind of grew up online, the lines between public and private were always very blurred anyway. So yeah, you're right in kind of saying that you have this private space where there are certain things that you would never kind of reveal publicly. But then at the same time in those private spaces that I was in anyway, like they were guided by particular rules. So being in a house with like three generations of people, it was always organized in this way that like you had obligations and you had duties to kind of people in the pyramid, right? So there were some things that I was going through that I would never be able to tell my parents or my grandparents, despite how personal they would be, because the system wasn't really built for it. In the same in, in a way that with the internet, even though it is this public forum and even though you're like spilling your guts out online, because you're kind of doing it through like an avatar, because you're doing it through this kind of identity that you've constructed, in many ways it's even it's it's just as if not even more private than if you were to tell it in like a real life situation, because this is an interaction between you and someone else in a space that like, you know, says that, you know, this is a space of free and open speech and like no one should be judged and no one should be kind of like, you know, and also there are no obligations. Like when I speak to someone online, like I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not like bound by juicy in any way to them. So we're speaking almost as if we're equals on this kind of platform that is only kind of being like controlled by a moderator. And my only obligation to a moderator on these forums is that like I I abide by the rules. Whereas in like a household situation or in like the mosque or in the madrasa, your obligations to your teacher or like your imam and stuff like that is much more to do with like overt respect and understanding that that with that respect comes an an element of like self-restraint. So I found the internet to kind of be a much more open and liberating place for dealing with like complicated problems that I was facing as a teenager or even as someone like in the early 20s who's going through this kind of crisis or conflict of identity and also being in a place where it seemed that everyone else was going through one too. Because again, in real life situations, like it's very rare that someone's going to like tell you that, oh, I'm going through all these like weird conflicts and like, I don't really know how to deal with them and can you help me out they're going to 
be you know they'll kind of exchange niceties or pleasantries with you they will kind of tell you that everything's fine and great but online it's a completely different situation i'll be like yeah i'm feeling really bad today i'm feeling really conflicted today and like i could really use your opinion and that's not just with religion that's like with everything that's like to do with like relationships that's to do with you know marriage issues like almost every kind of element of personal strife and personal conflict you can kind of see like the internet has kind of provided this platform as a way of expressing oneself in a way that like you can't translate into real world environments that's really helpful because i think i see the way we engage with each other online Mm. as removing the social niceties but only really in a negative way so it allows people to be to let their real frustrations or their irritation or their anger out but the way of expression actually makes it sound quite beautiful that they remove the social niceties in the sense of the small talk and the and the wall building mask wearing so that people can be more real for good or ill yeah. so it's just helpfully redemptive, redemptive for me yeah. um, the way you talked about atheism m- implied that that's not l- no longer what you would call yourself what no. was your what was the journey to I I think it's still like it's still like an ongoing journey yeah it's still an ongoing journey and I think what I've tried to do in the book is I mean when you read it like there's not a whole lot of myself in there and that's a very deliberate thing which is that I wanted to kind of tell other people's stories and what I wanted to do was show that like even so like one important thing to bear in mind is that everyone that was interviewed in this book for the most part said that like my like I am comfortable with my Muslim identity so the reason why I'm speaking to you is because I recognize myself as a Muslim but just because I would identify myself as one and very proudly so um, that doesn't mean that I don't go through periods of conflict myself. It doesn't mean that like the situation that I'm in, the infrastructure that is built around me is something that like I agree with or something that I'm comfortable in. And what I try to use technology for is to reconcile those conflicts, either by finding people who feel the same way as I do or finding like banding together with other people to kind of solve a problem that can in turn kind of resolve that kind of crisis of identity. And I think they sort of reflected the place where I was and to a certain degree, I still am, because even though I wouldn't identify as an atheist and I would still identify myself as a Muslim and someone who is like proudly so, I am also go- I also go through these periods where it's where I feel that like my the way that I practice isn't going to be like identical to my parents or it's not going to be identical to my communities. The choices that I make in my life will not be ones that all my community will like agree with whether that's like in career or whether that's in like relationships or whether that's in like my decisions in terms of how I express myself religiously you know these are things that I will come in conflict with with my community or like with other Muslims and stuff and my conclusion with that is like that's fine it's fine to have those conflicts and it's also fine to kind of come to a place where you can kind of recognize yourself as a Muslim And your practice is authentic and kind of practice in a way that's true and authentic to yourself. And I know that's like such a simple conclusion or it sounds like a simple conclusion, but I think for like people who grow up in communities where you're sort of told that these are the rules and these are the obligations and the duties and that by straying away from them, you are also straying away from your practice and your right to call yourself a Muslim. Like that is something that's like far too dominant and was very dominant in my life. And what I found was that for lots of young Muslims online seemed to be very dominant in their life as well. The conversations that they wanted to have or like the the discussions they wanted to have, their communities weren't facilitating. So they were turning to the internet as a way of doing so. And I think that I followed that same journey where it's like, well, it's taken me a long time to kind of be at the stage where I would proudly call myself a Muslim. 
like maybe there were times where I would reluctantly do so or I'd think to myself, okay, well, culturally I might be one. Also, one, one important thing is that like because of the nature of my name, like being an Islamic name, it means that like the state will view me as a Muslim all the time, right? So, you know, here's a fun anecdote. I went to America last week and obviously I got stopped by TSA and, you know, they gave me like a bit of trouble going through the border. And I do think that like part of it is because I have this Muslim name and like, by extension, we're going to have these assumptions. So even though it didn't last that long and like it was it was fine overall, it was again one of those reminders that like because of the virtue of who you are and how you were born, like there are some institutions that are always going to see you as a Muslim and they're always going to have these preconceived notions of what that means, regardless of like how you orientate or like try to define yourself. So I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure if this is making sense, but I think it was more about having like, being a religious person and growing up in a religious environment means having to constantly like reconcile what your faith is against what other people try to define you as. And to kind of get to that stage where you can be comfortable with that, or you can kind of be comfortable knowing that regardless of how other people define you, you are steadfast in how in your belief. Yeah. I think that's like a really good and healthy place to be. And I think that I'm getting there. I'm not quite a hundred percent there, but I'm much more at that stage than I was maybe like a few years ago. So let's talk a little bit about public conversations and the role of Islam in public conversations. Mm. And you're in a, a different position to other Muslims that I've talked to on the podcast in that you are both trying to navigate your Muslim identity in relation to the way Islam is perceived in public conversations, mm. but also as a journalist have some role in shaping those narratives. Yeah. So you have been in various media outlets trying to cover religion with a specific focus on Islam. How was that? It was interesting because I didn't expect... So when I started out wanting to be a journalist, I wanted to be like a Westminster person. Like I wanted to just cover politics. And I was really fascinated by that. But then at the time when I graduated from journalism school, there were no kind of like... There were no politics jobs for people like me who hadn't had experience before. But the way that I could get in was around about 2014, a bunch of like young Muslim people were joining ISIS. They were all traveling from like the UK into Syria and like all these journalists were like, we need kind of Muslim reporters to be able to speak and add context and, you know, figure out why all these young people are going. So I got in that way. So in some ways, like I got into this, I got into this area because even though I was sort of reluctant to be like the Muslim guy who was kind of reporting on Muslim news, it was also the way to get in anyway. So in some ways it was like very much a career move and like, that kind of sucks to say, but also I think like it was an, an inevitability. And I think so much of like really, so many really good Muslim reporters who are now working for like mainstream outlets, like got into the business by doing that. In terms of covering it, it's been interesting. It's been interesting in the sense that like lots of my preconceptions about what British Muslim identity is changed a lot. A lot of my conceptions about like, you know, so I had this idea of a binary for a long time where like you had conservatives versus liberals and what I realized covering you know, covering these communities for so long is actually like there is a lot more nuance in both these sides. There are like multiple sides. The idea of conservatism in terms of politics doesn't really translate to faith in the same way that liberalism also doesn't translate to faith. And like everyone has their own journeys as well. Like the religion beat is so interesting because it's so full of people who are so interesting and so believe so sincerely in their way of life and their faith and they also have to go through complex they also have to go through like you know the conflict of like their personal desires and needs versus like the needs of their communities or what they owe themselves versus what they owe like their communities and their faith and stuff and i think these you know so when we talk about like stories like the most interesting stories are ones where characters have to deal with multiple sides of themselves 
and have to kind of like fight their demons and stuff like that. And like the religion beat really was that. It was like looking at that like at a micro level. So I was so privileged to be able to kind of hang out with so many interesting people for so long. And a, a lot of these people also, you know, feature in the book. And I'm really proud of that. At the same time, I think that like, you know, and you can't really get away with this. Like there was like a degree of typecasting as well. So as, as like the UK media has become like more interested in theory in Islam or like, Muslim communities and what they're, you know, what they're up to and what they believe, like it can get really frustrating as well. You know, and we spoke about this when I worked here, you know, you know, sometimes being like slapped with stereotypes or sometimes, you know, having people who fashion themselves as spokespeople who kind of gave their own interpretation of like the Islamic faith, which would be completely at odds with mine. But for some reason, like as soon as like they kind of get their slot on Sky News or like on like whatever, like BBC Sunday TV show they're on, like they automatically become like the de facto person that people talk to about all things Muslimness. So in some ways, like this kind of cottage industry of like Muslim spokespeople has emerged as a result of like this kind of obsession with Islam mixed with kind of the demand for kind of fast paced TV or like fast paced radio rent ahead types of people. And that's kind of been, that was frustrating. And part of the reason why I wanted to write this book was to show that like this sort of narrative, these sorts of narratives that come out of demands for rent aheads have created this system where we don't really understand what young British Muslims really think about themselves or think about their place in this society. And you know, the people who are actually, the people who are quiet, the people who have these very small platforms online, but are making like huge differences and like huge waves in their communities that none of us know about. These are the people that we should be paying attention to. Yeah. And I kind of, you know, and this was really what I want when I, when I kind of left reporting on Muslim stuff full time, this was like my number one frustration that there were so many interesting people I met who just couldn't get a news platform because it was really difficult to contextualize that in this broad context of like, you know, Muslim rent-ahead stuff. And I'm hoping that this book will kind of make that change and people will read it and kind of think, oh, there's actually loads of interesting stuff here that I didn't know about at all because I was too busy, too busy thinking that X, you know, these people were kind of the Muslim voice and maybe I should reconsider who I listen to and why I'm listening to them. I could, as I was reading it, I was thinking this is going to be on so many journalist desks as like I hope so. an A to Z of diverse <laughs> yeah. voices to talk I to. I hope so. I mean, there's so much in it that we could talk about for, for a reason of time. Tell me just one thing that surprised you as someone yeah. who'd grown up online and been involved in atheist communities and, and Muslim communities yourself. As you went yeah, traveling, yeah. what is the thing that you remember thinking, wow, I did not know that? Oh, you know what? There were so many. There were so many like small moments where I was kind of thinking this is absolutely bizarre. Or like, this is absolutely fascinating. So like, it's really hard to pinpoint one. But So I'll, I'll try to do two. I'll try to do two. The first one is about ex-Muslim communities. I knew a little bit about ex-Muslims because I reported on them back in 2013 when I was, I, I did a piece for Vice while I was still a student at Journalism College. And when I went back to it, what was interesting about the ex-Muslim communities was that the first time I did it, I kind of just like profiled this one group the council of ex-muslims in britain who are like one of the kind of bodies that one of the unofficial bodies that represents ex-muslims and these were people who had rejected islam completely and they were people who were just like saying that we reject the faith in its entirety and the reason why we use the term ex-muslim is because like ex-muslims face like a an existential danger because of leaving the faith and like the dangerous implications that come from that and I think that's really interesting and it's like a really kind of important story to tell. But when I went to revisit the ex-Muslims, what I realized was that there's a much more kind of diverse community in the ex-Muslim network anyway. 
And there's actually this conflict that's happening in the ex-Muslim space at the moment between people who are trying to reject their identity or trying to reject this identity that's been put on them almost by doubling down on kind of like, you know, being an atheist. So sometimes they'll do things like ally with like, you know, far right groups who are anti-Muslim and in very bad faith because that's the way that they prove that they've left Islam. But on the other hand, you've got groups of people who are like, my Islamic identity is always going to be part of me because being in a country where an identity is like given to me and is also given to me like both by my family and by the state, like I can't just reject it. So I need to reconcile how I kind of live my own life and how I kind of live with my choice to not practice Islam, but also respect people around me that are because I don't want to like lose my family and stuff like there is kind of you know there are there are kind of different paths that you can take it's not just the extreme element of it the second story that I was really fascinated with was one of the stories that happens in the beginning which is just about a group of guys who do their own Friday prayers in their apartment and I know that like it's such a simple story. It's such like a simple thing, but it's such like for someone who's great, for someone who grew up as a Muslim, like it's it was such like a radical decision to make because so much about Friday prayers is about like, you know, reinforcing the idea of like big communities who pray together, who worship together, this whole idea that like the way that you do Friday prayers is by being around so many, like as many people as you can. And what these two guys were doing was basically saying, well, there's no point going to Friday prayers if like the sermons that we're getting aren't relevant to like the way that we live. There's no point going to these things if we're not like learning anything because we can't understand what the imam is saying. And there's no point doing, you know, there's no point like going to these prayers if like we're not getting anything out of it. So we're going to make a conscious choice to make our own Friday prayers where every week we're just going to listen to something that is kind of interesting or inspiring or something that will kind of um, help us kind of think about how we live and how we can improve society. And that's what the Friday prayers should have been, according to like the prophet and, the, you know, the text and stuff. And like, it's such a small story, but it would have been like, for me, it would have been unthinkable to think that, that could even be a possibility. You would, is one of those things that I always kind of accepted, but oh, I'm never going to really resonate with like Friday prayer sermons, but it's fine. I'll accept it, pray 20 minutes, I'll be back at work. So the fact that like these people, like these young men are not, you know, just taking it and they're kind of saying we want to make a change and if our mosques and our kind of local communities our local kind of mosques aren't making that change we're, we're going to do it and i think that kind of that guides so many of the decisions that other characters in this book make yeah so i think those are the two things that kind of have stuck with me uh you are obviously a really serious journalist and you've written uh quite a serious and weighty book about a big um, social issue yeah. you also in a way that feels quite typical for the moment that we're in uh, have a kind of online persona that yeah. is a bit more of a provocateur uh, is that fair way. to say that's one way of putting I it know like, that, you know we do, that, when that gets bandied that, yeah. that, that probably sounds like an insult I don't mean it to be no. um, but you kind of there was a spike in interest in Hussein when you uh, tweeted about overcharging white people for oh, soup in your coffee yeah. shop yeah. Um, which yeah. uh, was obviously a joke that your boss couldn't fire you for it because you, you were a Muslim, but got retweeted by some people who took it very seriously. Yeah. I know because of that. And also because, let's be honest, you keep coming back to it with very funny yeah. variations on the theme, like being a Muslim doctor was just whispering the Quran into baby's ears. Can, can I say a story about yeah. the doctor thing? And you know, like how I got into so much trouble with that because I was in Albany at the time in New York and I had tweeted it at like some stupid hour of the morning in Albany. Okay, so like part of it was like procrastination. Like 
working on this book has been like soul destroying in many ways so like i've used twitter like you can see like from i was very sincere a couple of years ago online and i was like over the past two years i've been writing this like my brain has slowly just like turned into mush where now like i just tweet garbage that no one should take seriously and yet somehow people do and when i was in albany i did the tweet about the doctor thing and it kind of just like got it got more out of hand than i expected someone uh, covered it as a serious thing right someone covered it as a serious thing but also like someone someone in america started calling all the hospitals in london and saying that there's this doctor this muslim doctor who's like who's like whispering words of the quran into newborn babies ears and turning them muslim and then i had like i got an email from the head of pediatrics at st thomas's hospital being like this is a very funny tweet but like can you take it down because there's someone calling us saying saying that like you, you know they're, look- fire this they're, they're, they're looking for you and like we I don't want to make the staff worry because I know it's a joke and everything and that's when I was like okay like a lot of this stuff is getting out of hand now that has led you to some encounters with the yeah. alt right well that's and- how that's how I met one of the guys that's how I met like one of the alt right guys who I spoke to and hung out with for a day in the book because like being being provocative, I don't want to say like being provocative, but being stupidly provocative sometimes can kind of lead to quite funny results. And my my relationship with the internet has changed. Where like I used to take it, you know, sincerely and seriously. I'm now in this stage where it's like, you know, a lot of dumb stuff stuff happens, and I want to use my I want to use my Twitter account almost as like respite. So the reason why I do these things partly is because. I do like the comedic aspect of it. I do like the idea that like this is just a space where you can be kind of funny and like bizarre in like ways that you can't really do in real life. The other way is also defense. So like, you know, for for as long as I've been on the internet, like I've always kind of received like racial or religious abuse or not, you know, or just like abusive language and stuff. And it's really difficult to know what to do with that. So for me, I always kind of, I, I sort of realized that, when people try to say these things often you know responding sincerely doesn't help like it's kind of you kind of giving them what they want because these people are trolling these people are trolls and they're trying to make you angry or they're trying to make you sincere or like you know make you like sincerely angry you know and they classify that as a win but if you act even more stupid with them they're kind of thrown into this bizarre world where they're like they don't really know how to respond because they didn't expect you to say that and then you end up just having these conversations that are just so funny for other people to watch. And it's a great way to kind of just like, you know, stop them tweeting at you because once they do it, they know that like they're going to be the ones who are going to be made the fall. And like they can't even go back to their like weird friends and say, hey, I made this person angry because it will just look really. So for me, it's like it's almost like this defensive mechanism, which when I say it doesn't sound good and i might have to talk about my talk about this with my therapist next week um but it's not kind of a healthy way it's it, it really isn't like a healthy way to live and i am trying to kind of think more about how i use my social media more positively especially because i have a platform that is a lot bigger than i expected so i don't know if that's an answer i think it's more just like this is something that i've done partly because i procrastinate a lot and partly because i feel like it's a good way of defending myself from the barrage of like stuff that has happened over the past kind of couple of years mostly it's procrastination right that makes sense last final question which might just open up a huge can of worms but it's about freedom of speech okay because uh obviously i follow you and i uh uh, listen to what you say and and others um and i think we're in an interesting moment uh, about freedom of speech and we've had a previous guest called james carey talk about the role of joking and freedom of speech which sort of relates to your tweet but I think, like many people, my default reaction is there's lots of things I'd rather people didn't say. Yeah. 
lots of the kind of defenders of freedom of speech are not people I'd naturally want to get aligned with because the things they want to say are just horrible and harmful. However, at base, like it's a necessary evil. Right. Your tell like what would you say to that? Because uh, yeah. I've been really interested to see you developing that, and um, it's yeah. it's left me really thoughtful about yeah. whether I'm in fact correct. On that. I don't know if I'm like I'm the best person to kind of know the nooks and crannies of it, but so I'll take it like because I've, I I'm interested in this subject largely because I think even though I think the opportunity to have like a good discussion about this has sort of been it's sort of in jeopardy because you have a lot of bad faith actors who kind of invoke freedom of speech as a way to kind of justify like quite abusive and harmful language. And I think it also like we, you know, it's not really about joking per se. Um, It's also just about like platforms and recognizing the power of platforms. So sometimes when you, you have people who say that like, Oh, my freedom of speech is being taken away when they're being kind of criticized for having like, for saying things that they may like sincerely believe is true, but is like sincere, like can be like problematic. And, you know, I've seen like a lot of these people being like, oh, you know, like lefty liberal types are kind of denying me my freedom of speech because they're like canceling me and stuff. And like, sometimes this feels really ridiculous because it's kind of like, well, you still have a platform, you're not being arrested. And also like, you know, as, as a reporter, like I've been in countries and I've been in areas where there are people who have sincere, like been arrested for like doing journalism. Like a few years ago, a friend of mine, who was a very good fixer in like who's worked in Iraq and Syria. Like he got arrested in Turkey, this supposed like bastion of like Islamic liberalism because he was doing journalism because he was like covering, he was covering like anti-Erdian protests. And, you know, he, there wasn't like this huge uproar for him. There have been like reporters like working in, you know, other areas of the world who have been, like arrested for doing journalism as well. So like as a journalist who's worked in these, who's worked in these environments, like freedom of speech is a very important thing for me as like a principle. And the one thing I would say is that I do think that some people use it disingenuously and we do need to get away from this idea that like, just because you're getting like a barrage of criticism from like teenagers on Twitter, like that doesn't mean that like your freedom of speech is being denied. And it's just kind of, you know, maybe you really need to think about what you're saying. The second thing is also, you know, the second thing is about platforms and the idea that there is a difference between having freedom of speech as a citizen in a country where like you have a government, you know, and whether you're being arrested for saying something openly versus like whether, you know, a place like Twitter or Facebook is taking, you know, is like suspended your account or shut your account down because you're violating like terms of service or you are kind of clearly part of a harassment campaign because, you know, and it goes back to this conversation that we had earlier in this, something we said earlier in the conversation, which is that as the internet kind of takes up so much of our life, this idea that you can, you can just log off and you can ignore it. I don't think that really applies anymore. Like if you're like, if your job is going to be online or if like you live online, then being harassed online is like very much like being, Beyond being disingenuous, I think there's a difference between having platforms suspend or like delete your account if you violate terms of service versus your state prosecuting you. And I, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's, a comp- it's a complicated conversation because it also like, I think being a comedian's approach on this is going to be very different from like a journalist's take on this. I think it also be very messy. So what I would what I would also what I would ultimately say is that like this conversation does need more nuance. It needs like a lot more people 
it needs a lot it needs a lot more people especially from like left-wing places talking about it i don't really see like on like flag like bbc flagship shows there's not really a lot of like left-wing like perspectives on like you know free speech despite the fact that like they are also impacted by the same kind of issues that right-wing people say that they are it was and- really interesting to me what you said you wrote an article about the soup tweet and you said yeah like the the traditional defenders of freedom of speech who rushed to defend count dankula and right right, right. um etc etc when i was like you know people were trying to get me fired for this tweet funnily enough they yeah. they weren't that noisy yeah, and, I wasn't, and i wasn't really that bothered by it but it was more just like this observation that like there's there's always this degree of selectivity over like who we define as like the free speech martyrs or who are who are like defined in popular culture as the free speech martyrs and we really need to think about that in the context of like well if we're going to advocate for freedom of speech in what context are, are we kind of are we defending it in absolute terms which means that we have to have this conversation about okay are we if we're defending it in absolute terms then lots of conventions around kind of particular like words with like really dark historic meanings or even like things like in relation to anti-semitism for example if they all of a sudden kind of just you know carte blanche you can say what you want you're really opening a a can of worms which you're not going to be able to put back in you know you're not going to be able to put put them back in again is that a kind of society that we want to live in and i think for a lot of people who are very who have almost like made careers out of like being free speech defenders, they haven't really thought that far ahead or they haven't really thought that clearly about like, if we're advocating for this absolutism, like where exactly, you know, what are going to be the consequences of it and who are going to bear the consequences of it? Maybe that's a conversation for another time. Hussein, thank you so much for thank talking you so to much. me. On the thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.